0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 39 of Her Story. This is your host, Cassidy Reed, and today I'm talking with Ashley Killam. Ashley is a trumpet player, educator, drill designer, entrepreneur, and international speaker. Ashley is the co-founder and owner of Diversify the Stand and the general manager for Rising Tide Music Press. In this episode, Ashley and I discuss the importance of our early music experiences, mentorship, diversity, and developing equity resources for others. So please share this episode with your friends and make sure you check out the link that I am including in the description for this episode so you can donate to Diversify The Stand's current commissioning project to commission new works for solo trumpet and piano. So be sure to check that out and support Diversify The Stand as well. I will see you all next Monday.
1: name name's Ashley Killam. I am a trumpet player, an educator, a drill designer, a public speaker now. Um, I'm currently based out of Radford, Virginia.
0: Excellent! And I'm so happy you're here and I'm really excited to dive into all the things we're going to talk about today. So I, I started this off with everybody just to have kind of a baseline of who you are and where you're coming from. So what got you started in music in the first place?
1: Yeah, I I actually had a babysitter who played trumpet. And when I was really young, I was like, oh, I want to be just like her. And so when the time came in sixth grade to choose instruments, I was like, I'm gonna play the trumpet. And no one can tell me otherwise. (laughs) And yeah, then it just kind of stuck from there. And I grew up in a tiny town in Michigan, I was right next to Michigan State University, so I had a lot of opportunities working with composers that came to MSU and private lessons through undergrads and grad students that went to Michigan State, and I think it was, I went to one of those, like, Disney trips, you know, that, like, Mm -hmm. every uh, high school takes. Yeah, I went to one of those, and we played, it was like we were playing film scores, and then they put it with like the the clip of the movie, and that was at the point when I was like, "I think I need to do this for mm-hmm. you know forever, and I'm going to go teach band." And that was my whole you know initial plan <laughs> to staying yeah. in it.
0: What made you, besides that, what made you pursue music at the collegiate level?:
1: I just loved teaching people, and mm-hmm. initially, I, I, so I went in for my undergrad in Music Ed. And I just wanted to teach band. I just wanted to learn all of the instruments and to just learn more. And I had a great time doing that. I went to the University of Illinois and they were awesome. They they have a great music ed program there. And so I spent all my time doing that. And then I think it was when I was a junior-ish, I realized I wanted to take some time and just learn more on trumpet and get better on trumpet. And so I decided to go the route of getting a master's in performance right afterwards where I still wanted to be able to do the teaching, which I made sure to spend my entire time out there doing as much teaching as I could because I didn't want to give up that part of me at all.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's excellent. How were your experiences, like because you, you got your bachelor's music ad, like you said, at University of Illinois, you went on to your master's at the University of New Mexico. So what were those experiences like being a woman and a trumpet player in both of those schools? It was...
1: Interesting. (laughs) Um, I always felt, at least at U of I, I felt this pressure from being a music ed student that I was just worried that people would think less of me, which isn't the case and shouldn't be the case because your degree should not define you as a player and as a person. Um, So I had a lot of conversations about. You know, if I should double major, which I hear a lot when I talk to undergrads now about, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, I don't feel I'm doing enough. I think people are looking down on me. And I had a lot of conversations with my professors about that for that fear. And it boiled down to, you know, you can be just as good of a player, whatever your piece of paper says. Yeah. And so I ended up, I mean, I stayed just with the single major through my undergrad, but I made sure I had a... Um, a junior half recital, which every performance major had to do. I did a senior full recital, which every performance major had to do. And I tried to hold myself to the standards and do all of the same things that, you know, the performance majors were required to do. Mm -hmm. So that for me, it felt like I was doing just as much. I was still learning. I was still improving. And I was told, you know, if you want to continue with this, then look for your master's. So I did that. And at UNM, it was super supportive. Um, my professor, that's when I started all of my, my personal research and pretty much went up to my trumpet professor. And I was like, Hey, uh, this is what I'm researching. This is what my master's recital is going to be. And you know, you can't tell me otherwise. (laughs) (laughs) And so it was nice because I was given a lot of freedom to make those calls. Um, I was given just that opportunity to, Take that path for myself, and it wasn't you know you have to play all of the standards because that's how we do it here, um, but it was very interesting because they just the 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 culture there the faculty were incredibly supportive. Mm-hmm. the The toughest part in being a woman in brass for me was just other colleagues, and yeah, yeah. The judgment giving the judgment received when I wasn't when I decided not to go the typical path of sit in an orchestra.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I don't know if it was some people didn't know how to accept that or didn't know how to respond to that. Um, but I definitely felt looked down upon by certain members of the studio because I wasn't trying to take this traditional path, which now I promote, you know, whatever path you want. If you want to not sit in an orchestra, and not be in a military band, that's fine. If you want to, great. Um, but there's so much more than just that pipeline Career.
0: Yeah. Oh, I completely agree with everything that you're saying. My experience has been very similar. My bachelor's degree is also music ed, um, but I was a very performance heavy person. And I did exactly what you did when I was in my undergrad. I still played a junior recital. I still played a senior recital. I still, you know played in every single ensemble I could, took lessons and everything like that. So I I went above and beyond to do the same exact things that all of my performance counterparts were doing because there is that fear, there is that anxiety that we are looked down upon as music education majors. And it does exist, it is a thing, right? And I also can relate to you um, coming from my experience in my undergrad wasn't exactly negative coming from the faculty, but I did have some negative experiences from people that were in my studio and other colleagues for being a woman and playing my instrument. So I think we have kind of similar sort of collegiate experiences in that way. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, um, I do agree. There There is that kind of bias and there is that perception that does give those of us who really care about being professionals and excelling at our instrument a lot of anxiety when we are music ed majors, which entirely shouldn't be the case because if anything, our career path, the career path that I'm on now, I'm preparing all of these young musicians to do those things and to be, you know, so like if you're not skilled at your instrument and you're not seeking those opportunities when you're in college, like you're not going to be the professional that these kids need to prepare them for that. So I do agree that there is that weird perception, but that shouldn't be the case because if anything, we should be honoring music ed people even more because they are the people that are going to be, you know, making sure all of your careers um, exist
1: still. (laughs) And even just looking at the schedule, I've seen performance major schedules. Mm -hmm. There's only so much time I can sit in a practice room. Yeah. But learning every single instrument, having to make all those lesson plans, having to get through to cover so much more – like that's so yeah. respectable.
0: Yeah, and it's it's so funny because my boyfriend and I have been dating him for over five years now. We met in my undergrad, my freshman year. He's also a trumpet player, and he was a performance major. He he um he actually just graduated from the Colbert School with his masters um last spring. So. He, you know, went on the entire trumpet performance route, and then I was the entire Ed route, but we were, I was still seeking the same exact opportunities that he was, and it's just so funny to me, because if I stuck a bassoon in his hand right now, I think he'd probably cry.
1: Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) See, if I went back and did a trumpet, that would be my instrument. I'd totally pick bassoon. Really? Yep. I love oh, it. So I just didn't want to, I don't like spending $20 on a reed. I'm like, okay, give me the same mouthpiece for, you know, years.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. Um, I think if I wasn't a trumpet player, I probably would have played horn. I just, I just love the horn. Very jealous of its sound and everything. And yeah. I, and I, for whatever reason, I have a very natural ability to play tuba, which is, a t- <laughs> so I think that maybe I should have been a tubist too. And maybe I would have been like some crazy person on the tuba or something, but <laughs> wasn't really into it when i was a kid i was definitely headstrong set on being a trumpet player um just like you were so and i think that's really awesome that your babysitter was a trumpet player and that le- that like sort of mentorship that person that was in your life kind of inspired you to be a trumpet player as well it's yeah really awesome. yeah it's super cool i would like to get into um, some of your more professional experiences that you've had in your life so like you you mentioned that you were a you are a drill writer and you have some marching band experience so you know we're talking about how obviously the trumpet is a male-dominated instrument. We always, we all have those experiences that, you know, a grab bag of both positive and negative, whether it's from people in authority or our colleagues or that sort of thing. And marching band is even more the case Mm -hmm. of women being outnumbered. So what was that experience like for you being a drill writer and visual instructor and director um, of multiple marching bands?
1: Yeah. So I started marching, I mean, in high school, it was a very like, Big Ten style. So it's, there's no movement, no, nothing you see in like drum chorus. And then I went to U of I, same sort of style. um, But I just asked the marching band director that, you know, if I could do an independent study, because I wanted to learn how to write drill. So I did. And I started out writing everything by hand, and then having to use pieware. And that's when all of this learning how to outreach started and I just started reaching out to directors in within Illinois saying hey do you need someone who doesn't you know charge a lot of money to write you drill to give me experience so that's how that started and it just continued on I've been teaching high school marching bands since I graduated high school so I had that experience of teaching trumpet or teaching brass and it just expanded into me teaching full groups Mm -hmm. Um, But I never marched drum corps, which I didn't know drum corps was a thing until my junior year in college. It wasn't this big, you know, thing everyone did in Michigan. Mm -hmm. And so I learned about it and I actually auditioned for the Phantom Regiment because it was close. It was in Illinois and I hated it. I hated every moment of that camp. (laughs) I just did, my body didn't want to move. The vibe was really weird. It was a very we'll accept you if you've been here before, mm. but we're not really gonna you know, welcome you in if you're new. So it was a very weird weekend. So I didn't end up doing drum corps and half of me regrets that because that would have helped my drill. So I kind of had to yeah. grow the, the long route where I just did a lot of watching videos. I did a lot of learning on my own. I was teaching, I started teaching visual blocks where I'd teach like the ballet terms and teach dance blocks. And I was looking up how to pronounce the terms the night before. And so it was all very, you know, learn as we go. And with my drill, it was, you know, learn how to write this, learn how to explain all of these terms, learn how to do choreography because I didn't have the experience, but schools needed, you know, to amp up general effects scores. So it had to be there. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of just been this, uh, like six year learning process continuing to, you know, build and grow and do all I can, even though that wasn't my background in what I'm writing for now. Yeah, yeah marching, marching band always seemed weird to me <laughs> mm-hmm. um, because
0: like I grew up in the Buffalo, New York area. So marching band was not like a, a, yeah. a thing, right? It was very wind ensemble heavy. Um, there were a few neighboring schools that did have marching bands, but it wasn't like he- a huge thing. Mm-hmm. And I went to my undergrad in Ohio where marching band is massive. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: yeah. um, and that was just
0: like a weird environmental shock for me where I was told, you know, if you don't do marching band, you're student teaching, you're not going to get a teaching job. Yep. And guess yeah. Guess who didn't do marching band and her student teaching and still has a 712 band director job. Mm-hmm. Um, it just never really was my thing, and I, I I knew a lot of lot of people who were in marching band and who loved it, and who did drum corps and who loved it. I'm interested to see what the differences in perception of women who have been in these drum corps ensembles are versus men because i feel like there there's probably a stark difference in perceptions i i did interview someone who did have um, a pretty negative drum corps experience as well as a woman when she was young and they've since kind of like adjusted the the rules and things with certain drum corps about age limits and things like that because she was a minor when she was in drum corps and it was not a good experience for her so i i'm interested to see like what that is because there's always this sort of, like, macho mentality when mm-hmm. it comes to band and when it comes to especially a marching band that I feel like really alienates women. I don't know. It's just it's, – it's a weird experience. Some people have very positive experiences of that. So this is not me dissing a marching band at all. And then there are some people who have very negative experiences as well. So it's, like, kind of a grab bag depending on, you know, where you are and the people that you're around because you're around those people all the time.
1: Yep. Yeah. Now, I've definitely heard comments from that and – I mean, the one weekend I, I had that camp, it was just the overall you know, acceptance like atmosphere, but I've definitely heard comments. I mean, certain times of the month, you have to you know, think about like, your own health. And I, I have heard from, from colleagues and friends of mine that at least their experience wasn't accepting in drum corps. And it was like, okay, stick a tampon in and deal with it for the entire day. Mm. and we won't give you breaks to help yourself, which is like, you know, that's not okay. <laughs> that's oh. <laughs> because that is really taking away from just your overall health that you have to consider and think about and, you know, hold up.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. That's crazy. And I, and I feel like it's just because a lot of drum corps are also run by men and they just like, don't understand those things.
1: Yeah. They're yes. just kind of like,
0: just tough it out. Just why can't you, you know, like certain oh, yeah. things like that. Yeah. They just don't, don't get it. I actually had a very um, interesting, this is kind of related to the whole period thing. I was in a faculty meeting the other day and we were talking about how like a lot of kids in our school take advantage of going to the bathroom a lot during <laughs> class and one of the male teachers like raised his hand he was like well I just think we should have a, a a pass where like um all students can't go to the bathroom more than once a day and if you see on the passes kids already gone to the bathroom once you can't let them go what and I like raised my hand and I was like um there is a thing called a period that adolescent women have and uh they're gonna need to go to the bathroom yeah <laughs> And Jeez. he just turned bright red. Like I was being so sarcastic. Oh my gosh, it was just so ridiculous to see them like, "Oh, oh it it excuse me, you're gonna police when these kids can go to the bathroom?" <laughs> like
1: seriously, oh, my that's, yeah, that's ridiculous.
0: Yeah. So yeah, I think there is just like some people just don't. I don't know. I just think it just doesn't register with them that like, yeah. this is a thing, right? And that you know, I don't know. It's crazy though. That's crazy that, um, that they had that experience as well. But moving on from um, marching band, I'd like to talk a little bit about um, some of your advocacy work because you have a lot. And that's one of the reasons why you're here, because I really want to talk about all these things that um, you've been doing to bring awareness for underrepresented voices in music. Can you talk a little bit about your lecture, which is called Fanfare for the Unheard?
1: Yeah, so I, when I was in school at UNM, I took a course, it was this optional grad course called Female Voices in Composition. So I took this class, and it was all about just women creators over the course of history. So we'd learn about, you know, Lady Gaga one day, we'd learn about Hildegard von Bingen the next day, and it was just across genres, across time periods. And our final project was to build a a recital for our instrument. And write program notes on it. So I realized I could only name one piece for trumpet by a woman, mm. and I wasn't even sure if it was a woman. The Park mm Concerto, because mm-hmm. I was like, you know, sometimes like the Alexandra Alexander, like sometimes that gets a little ambiguous. <laughs> yeah. And so I I started you know finding these pieces and realizing how many cool pieces and how many cool composers there were, and. I just made that my trumpet recital. And so my master's recital was called More Than Just Dead White Guys, a graduate trumpet recital. Oh, and I love it. Yeah, it was, it was great. And it featured six works by living women composers. It was so cool. And then I went to IWBC after I graduated and I actually spoke with Nancy Taylor, who I lectured in front of her students uh, this past semester. And she thought it was the coolest thing because she was the one that kind of kickstarted this all and was like, you need to make this a presentation. People need to hear this. And I didn't know how to, I did not like speaking in front of people. I barely like having people, you know, hear me perform. I get so nervous. And so (laughs) I went home that summer and started making this presentation and just reaching out to places, starting with schools that were nearby me in North Carolina, Mm -hmm. saying, hey, I have this thing. Can I talk to you about, and can I talk to your students about composers? And it went over so well, and everyone was so excited to hear these new names and learn about this new music and learn about why it's important to you know play more than just the standard five concertos. And so I started expanding this into music ed classes, into choral works, into string works, band, and just reaching as many classes and as many universities universities as I could, just showcasing names and sharing. Ideas on how to start going about this work and sharing resources and talking about commissioning music and just a lot packed into a little hour presentation. And I took, on a whim, I I took a week in February before everything shut down and I visited the Midwest. I went to nine schools in four days just presenting this lecture. A variety of courses and it was so fun and so from there i i mean everything shut down and so i took this online and people need virtual presentations that are exciting people need new content and i have something really important to talk about in an hour and so it's been really cool to reach all areas of the country and i had a lecture in canada which was awesome and i can do that from my office (laughs) that's
0: awesome Yeah, that lecture series sounds awesome, and I and I love the fact that you were traveling around to different schools and speaking to young people about this. And you were talking about how you could only really name like one trumpet piece by a woman composer. Mm -hmm. Um, and I honestly, like growing up, I don't think I couldn't even name a single one. I don't think I ever, growing up until you know I got into college and everything. I don't think I ever played. A, a piece for a trumpet by a woman or a person of color or a non-binary yep. individual. I, it was always just men. Yep, and, and exactly. It's, it's because, I think part of the reason is just because a lot of private teachers think they just need to teach to whatever is required on auditions yeah. for undergrad institutions. So like, you know, the stereotypical Haydn, Hindemith, Hummel, H
1: mm-hmm. HHH.
0: Yep. H cubed or, you know, things like that. And so that's all kids are playing in high school. And it's the same pieces over and over again. I think I played the canon too and things like yep. that. It's just like all men, right? And then you get into college and it's kind of the same thing because when you audition for festivals or you're preparing things for graduate auditions, it's the same stuff. And yep. I'm actually starting to see though. At least as far as graduate audition requirements are, not so much undergrad. Undergrad is still very strict with like the standard trumpet repertoire, but yeah. some undergrad places, uh, graduate places, are starting to let people have a little bit more freedom with what they want to bring. I don't know if you've noticed that, but they, you know, they may not strictly say you need to prepare this, 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 and this. It might be like you need to prepare two pieces that are contrasting or something yep. like that, so then you can, like, take the opportunity yourself, be like, okay, I'm gonna play something that they probably have never heard before, because <laughs> exactly. they six pieces every year. Um, oh,
1: yeah.
0: Yeah, so I think that's kind of a positive that's starting to spin that way, but there's still just so much, it's so hard, because I feel like a lot of K-12 educators and people that teach privately feel a lot of pressure to teach their students that standard rep, they don't necessarily have the time to like explore other avenues because these requirements are there for everything competitions festivals auditions what
1: have you it's such a hard balance and i've had a lot of professors ask me that this year on what are ways you know we can allow for students to choose their work i'm like the simple thing is just take away the requirement of you know x y and z make it even if you want you know different time periods showcased saying oh bring, bring something from these three time periods. Or I know for U of I, it was like, bring something that you can play on every instrument for grad work Mm -hmm. to just showcase that difference. And I've talked to students about when you don't have to, you know, have that requirement of playing the Haydn and the Artunian, find something different because then, I mean, of course, professors are still going to make sure you're competent at your horn. They're still going to make sure everything is really great but they may not know the piece. So if you screw something small up, or if you're taking it, I know I had one professor for my master's. I took a lesson with him and he immediately called something out. It was on the Haydn. And I'd spent so much time working with a bunch of professors, making sure it was the way I wanted it to sound. He picked apart one tiny detail of how I was playing it. He was like, I hate how you're playing this. I'm like, but like, it's, it's how I'm interpreting the piece. Mm-hmm. Like, well, I hate how you're doing that. And then when I went to audition again, his first comment was, you never fixed that thing. <laughs> they can't do that if they don't know the piece. <laughs> and so yeah. it felt, that's the one thing I really liked. And, and if I go back into school, I'm going to make sure I, I audition somewhere that allows that freedom so I can choose the pieces because if I'm enjoying the pieces more, if I'm more invested it's going to come across better to the audience or to the professors or wherever I'm performing it for. It's going to come across better too because I care more about that music.
0: Yeah, and that's one of the things that I really appreciated about my undergrad experience because my teacher in my undergrad, um, Jack Studdy, he plays second trumpet in the Cleveland Orchestra. He allowed us, for the most part, to pick what rep we were going to work on during a semester. And I just thought that was normalcy I was like, yeah, like my teacher lets me like pick what I want to work on oh, that's you awesome. know. It, for a recital. I got to pick every single piece that was on my recital, got to design the whole thing, both junior and senior. And I thought that was normal. And then I was talking to other trumpet players from other universities and they're like, no, like my teacher literally tells me I have to play mm-hmm. this my freshman year. And then this my sophomore year. And they have like this whole really strict curriculum Yep. through all years of school. And I'm sitting there like, what? That's a thing. Like, yeah. I mean, my, my teacher had me working out of, like, we're talking, like, a twos and things like that. He had me working out of specific books, right? Like, every other student has to. But yeah. as far as, like, solo repertoire or chamber music or whatever, it was our freedom to go and explore and pick what we want. And so, like, you know, I was playing night songs, which is a flugelhorn solo with chamber yeah. orchestra, like, on my senior recital. And I was trying to explore more current music. Um, as well. And so, like, I just really appreciated that I got that freedom to explore that. And I just, I thought that was normal. I was like, what? Oh, you guys don't awesome. get to make <laughs> play? What? Yeah, so I, I really appreciated that experience. And I think it's, I, I feel like it's also with certain instruments and certain studios. Yeah. I think trumpet studios are very heavy on the playing the standard rep and teachers having a lot of control over their studio versus some other instruments that I've seen. Like, I don't know, it's like the stereotype, like we have the stereotypical personalities for every instrument. It's kind of like that. I know like violin studios, it's very much like that as well. There's kind of this like possession over what happens in the studio. And I've seen that across a a lot of schools. So I just think it's so weird that there's just different dynamics also depending on what instrument you play and what studio you're in.
1: Yeah, and it's just so crazy because, I mean, for for piano or for voice or for violin, you've got this extensive rep that's been around for, I mean, you just have so much. For trumpet, compared to other instruments, our rep isn't that big. But mm-hmm. when you do some digging, like, I was able to find almost 900 pieces to put yeah. in like, a spreadsheet. Okay, that's plenty of recitals. But I think yep. some of it, no offense to you know, anyone who does program that way does teach those same pieces. But it's just the lazier approach. It's the Mm -hmm. easier approach because you just teach what you know. And it's uncomfortable when you have to work with students on pieces you don't know. But that's something that we can, you know, kind of lean into. Like it may be uncomfortable at first, but as the instructor, as the educator, you get to learn while your students are learning. It takes off when I was practicing for my master's recital, uh, my professor, John, didn't know any of the works. I think he'd played one. Mm-hmm. But it took all of this pressure off me because there wasn't, you know, this one... I didn't have to play all of the ornaments a certain way. I didn't have to play yeah. all of the There's inflections a certain way. There's that pressure
0: to play it the way your teacher's playing it when they yeah. played that piece a bajillion times. They don't, exactly. And he didn't know the piece. Until,
1: mm-hmm, and yeah. he didn't know the piece, so we worked together to... He got to help me on... You know, becoming a better player, becoming yeah. a better musician, but I was the one that got to make all of the decisions on how I wanted something to sound because there weren't recordings for some of the pieces, which is such a cool project.
0: Yeah, yeah, and another thing that my teacher did while I was at school, um, he started this project my junior year and then went through my senior year with it, was he it was called a sonata palooza it was kind of funny he like made a joke out of it but he made he made a whole um recital series he actually recorded all of them too where he his project is to play every single trumpet sonata ever made oh that's awesome (laughs) so he's playing you know he's got you know the stereotypical ones like hindemith and blah 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 but like he also has found these sonatas that like nobody's ever heard of yeah he just finds these really obscure composers i'm like who the hell is that? But that is a really cool piece and things like that. So he's, he, he, he created a barrier for himself in that it's, you know, he boxed it as it's only sonatas, but he's still able to explore so many works because there's so much out there. It's just not being performed.
1: Oh, a hundred percent.
0: Yeah. So doing projects like that, I think is a really cool thing. And also when you're a teacher, when you're, you know, a professor at a university or conservatory, wherever it it means so much more when you are actively performing and and pursuing music that isn't performed because it's either by a minoritized population or it was written during a weird time or it's just a composer nobody's ever really heard of because it's just not being performed like to do that to explore that stuff and then perform it for your students speaks a lot to the fact that like, music is still a creative art. It's not, we don't have to keep recycling and reusing the same stuff over and yep. over again. Exactly. Connecting that um, to some of your other work, you are the new diversity and you're the new co-founder <laughs> of the Diversity and Inclusion Committee for the International Trumpet Guild. So what has that experience been like for you um, being part of that organization?
1: It's been good to build up. I, Carrie and I got in touch when I reached out to the ITG journal editor. And I was like, hey, I would love to, you know, write about some of the work I've been doing. Write about some of the pieces, the composers, and start sharing these stories. Because I think it's really important. And he ended up forwarding me an email from Carrie, who was also interested in doing some volunteer work and so we ended up creating the diversity and inclusion committee just because we want to help progress itg they have a lot of great things set up they have a lot of these committees set up these areas they're very strong in and there are just small things that we want to kind of filter in with social media with the journal and just making sure that the whole group as a whole is being inclusive is representing all types of people uh are providing opportunities to a bunch of different voices and people and students and continuing to better themselves because there's one thing to you know make a statement online saying oh yeah we support all people and then there's another on actually making some change and so Our committee is, you know, meeting every month, creating short and long-term goals within the group and having these conversations. And they're tough conversations to have because it causes, you know, individuals to have a lot of self-reflection on, you know, we have been doing things the same way, but how can we make it better? And so we're hoping to have those conversations and continue to move it forward because even something as small as the way, you know, informs Is asking for gender really necessary, is it not? Is there an easier way to, you know, is there a way to make terminology and make these questions and make these forms more inclusive? Something as simple as that. Or one of their, when I joined one of their, or their timeline photo on Facebook, I counted, it was like 65 people on the screen. And I think there were three women and every single person on the stage looked white or very light skinned and something like that that's not the you know the base of people here that's not society as a whole and so why can't we showcase all of these different people so then when you've got the up and coming generation they really want to target the younger students
0: which is great
1: but if we just change our pictures to be more inclusive and to be more diverse and to be more representative of, you know, who the members are, students are going to look at that. And before even hearing any recording, they're going to see, hey, that person looks like me. I can do this. I can continue mm-hmm. this. And that inspires so many people.
0: Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. And, and I love how you mentioned the conversation about pronouns. And identification and whether or not that that's, you know, you identifying your sex, if that's worthy of being on a, a form, mm-hmm. um, which I, I completely agree with because when we are performing our instruments, right, like they're, it's an auditory skill, right? So. Yep it doesn't necessarily matter if you're male, female, whoever, if they sound good, they sound good. And, and that should be the person that, you know, gets the audition or gets their job or whatever. And so like, I don't think that that should matter. It also boxes certain populations out. When you have to identify male or female, anyone that's non-binary yep. is going to be othered literally because they have to mark other <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> um, or situations like that. It's just, in, in my opinion, it's not worth it. And so we put a, a, a very strange emphasis on sex identification mm-hmm. um, instead of just asking people for their pronouns. Like, cool, you can ask for my pronouns on, you know, when I come into audition to be a respectful human because that's what everybody should do. But like identifying male, female, other yep. on the form is just ridiculous. So, yeah, I, exactly. I'm really happy that you're having that conversation.
1: Yeah, and I've heard from some people just in, in reading a lot that sometimes organizations need that for like grants and for applying for things. I'm like, all right. Okay. So if you, if you absolutely, if it is absolutely necessary, what is a better way we can have, you know, have it listed, have it seen than just male, female, other, and, and having these talks. And so that's why we have this committee because it's like something as simple as instead of checking a box, just make it a short answer thing where every single person can self identify. Yeah, exactly. Cuz then you take the extra okay, say you are a male. You great, you take an extra 2 seconds to type out four letters and then you're fine. Yep. But that just makes it so everyone is on the same playing field. Everyone is included and everyone's seen and it's not cool. We're going to, you know, have this on there just because but everyone is kind of in their own little other space
0: yeah and it even makes me uncomfortable when I see my school because I'm a, I'm a 712 band director my school uses infinite campus which is like where we post our grades and like student information that okay. like sort yeah. of hubs kind of like blackboard um but we have like student rosters on there and it even makes me uncomfortable that I have transgender students in my ensembles and their sex identification which isn't even accurate anymore is still listed oh um, all of their student forms. (laughs) That's weird. Yeah, and I I had a student uh, a few months ago come out to me saying, you know, now I go by he, him pronouns, yada, yada, yada. I was like, oh, that's great, good for you. I'm so proud of you. And I just feel so bad because every time that student pops up on Infinite Campus, it still says that he is a female, every time. And I can't imagine like how that feels, being him having to view that every single day And see that you know he is still being treated as a female, and I'm just just F right next to his name, and I'm just like, oh, it's the worst. And he's even going by a different name now. It's like not even accurate on the system. I'm like, can we
1: please just change this? Yeah, that is so that beyond disappointing.
0: Yeah, and it's it's sad because we live in a very binary world. Like I don't even think that the school has an option, if a student is transgender, to even just, like, change the letter on there. I think it's either, it's M or F. Jeez. Yeah, so it's, it's rough, and I'm sitting there, like, oh, we gotta change this somehow. I don't even know if I can, my little old me powers, but. Yeah,
1: find and out. that just shows so many of the, I mean, there's so many underlying issues that it's, Yeah. we take, you know, we take three steps forward, and there's 300 left to go. It's such a slow, and I've, I've seen, I mean, it's such a slow process with the universities and with schools, and it takes so long to make any small change. It's crazy.
0: Yeah, it is crazy. And so, you know, you're doing all these projects. You are you are a co-founder of the Diversity and Inclusion Committee, and then you and your friend Carrie, who Carrie, we've had on the podcast before. So if you've not listened to Carrie's episode, you should go back in time and listen to it, because I interviewed Carrie over the summer. You two started a new project called Diversify the Stand and your website's already up and everything. And can you talk a little bit about what is Diversify the Stand and what is your mission?
1: Yeah. So Diversify the Stand started when we had a lot of ideas for ITG and it wasn't moving fast enough for what we wanted to do. (laughs) And we're just interviewing Gosh, composers and educators, performers, entrepreneurs of all genders, of all backgrounds, of all sexualities, of all just people, and just showing and talking about what's important to each of them. And we are starting a book club, which is a free book club. And we're just going to be reading again these just diverse stories learning about things that a lot of us didn't learn while growing up and while in school. And then our big project are So along with showcasing these stories, we want to do a lot of this by commissioning music as well. So our biggest things are just showcasing stories, talking with people and bringing in new music because to continue to move us forward, we need to continue to build the rep that we can play that we teach. And so our first commissioning project. I'm super pumped. It's been almost a week since we launched. It's a trumpet solo book of progressive solos. So we're working with 12 composers. There's going to be three beginner solos, four intermediate and five advanced works. And they range from, I mean, like a really great Know, middle school, early high school player through undergrad level-ish, or even you know if you're undergrad or a grad student and you just want a piece that's not a chop killer, just something that's a little bit of a break. All of these 12 composers have written for brass and written for trumpet, and they're incredible people. They're at all stages in their careers. They're all backgrounds. They are, gosh, all genders, all different types of instruments. And it's been such a cool project to start working with them and to see the response from the public. When we launched this, we were really nervous because I think it's really important to have just more, more works, especially for beginner players. Um, But I was nervous that other people may not think that. And everyone has been so excited for this, which is really cool. um, Because when I started, I made a whole spreadsheet just collecting all of the research that I've done. And out of the almost 900 pieces I found, there were 20 that were appropriate for like a student level player. And that's kind of where this whole commission project started because we just want more works for younger players. Mm -hmm. I don't want to have to give the same four pieces to my, you know, freshman student because that's all I've got. And so a lot of these commissioning projects and we have future books in mind, they're all going to be centered around just what's accessible for students. There are so many pieces that are crazy, you know, difficult and virtuosic that you can find, but there's a lot less out in the world for the younger people and might as well find music that they can enjoy. That makes them want to continue with music makes them want to continue learning about these composers.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and your mission with this project is is very similar to mine and is one of the reasons why I, I got started with this podcast as well was to, you know, tell the stories and amplify the voices of underrepresented people in music, you know, no matter gender, sexuality, ethnicity, race, and those sorts of things. So I'm I'm really happy that we're also sharing in this mission with each other as well. And I think it's really awesome that you are commissioning um, those works for trumpet and piano because there is there is that lack of diversity in trumpet as we had talked about a lot um, in this episode but also you know for younger players as well that is a big gap and not just for trumpet before any solo works for any instrument for band orchestra choir not so much they tend to be a little more diverse um, mm-hmm. all the way through k-12 but definitely orchestra and band there's a really big gap there as well and we need to encourage you know minoritized populations in composition to compose more for younger folks as well. So I think it's really awesome that you are heading this project on. And anyone who's listening right now, you can donate to help this commissioning project. I will link um, all that information in with this episode. So if you'd like to donate um, to the commissioning project, you can do so there as well. Ashley, I want to thank you so much for coming on and for um, talking about all of your projects and your experiences. And I'm really excited um, to see what you and Carrie are doing in the future with all this stuff with ITG and with Diversify the Stand.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Yeah,
0: it was awesome. Thanks.